Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. By now, you probably know that it was a bad election for Democrats in New York. While Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul has made history to be the first woman elected governor of New York, and a win is a win, and she gets to govern, it was a far narrower margin than the last four Democratic wins of the governor's office. Other statewide Democrats also underperformed expectations, both historical and for what major advantages via incumbency, voter enrollment, and fundraising, you would have to think they would have won by wider margins. Something different happened in New York than across the country. And Democrats also lost state legislative seats in both the New York State Senate and the Assembly, the latter including several in New York City, mostly concentrated in southern Brooklyn, and there's a lot being examined there. But Democratic challenges in New York were especially glaring when it comes to seats in Congress. And while we're still awaiting one of the state's House races to be called in the 22nd District, Democratic losses, also known as Republican wins, could be what makes the difference in which party ultimately controls the House. The national picture on that front is far from decided. Now, let's be clear. Democrats were never expected to be this close here in the first midterm election of a Democratic president, especially given certain trends around Joe Biden's approval rating, inflation, and more. But Democrats nationally overperformed and Republicans underperformed, except here in New York. In major battleground areas, the purple sections of the state, Republicans flipped two Long Island-based congressional seats, now controlling all of the congressional seats on Long Island, and won two of three Hudson Valley-based seats. That included the stunning upset of Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee by Republican Assemblymember Mike Lawler. Lawler was a guest here on the show in the lead up to Election Day. You can find that interview if you'd like. One bright spot for Democrats in New York, however, was Pat Ryan, who won that other Hudson Valley House seat. Ryan won a tight race and come January will represent New York's new 18th congressional district, which includes parts or all of Dutchess, Ulster and Orange counties. Here's where things get a little complicated, so bear with me for a moment, and this relates to some of the craziness with redistricting in New York, but also with upheaval given the move by Antonio Delgado to go from Congress to New York lieutenant governor this past summer. He, of course, just won the election with Kathy Hochul, and they'll stay in office for the next four years, most likely. In August, Pat Ryan won a special election to replace Delgado in the current 19th congressional district. You may have heard about this, of course. But with the shifting lines between the current districts and the new districts, which are what this fall's elections were based on and what governance will now be based on for the next 10 years, Congressman Pat Ryan, short-term congressman here so far, began representing the current 19th congressional district while running in the new 18th congressional district, which has something like 50% shared territory. Ryan won the 18th congressional district race here and will shift to representing that district come January. Meanwhile, in the Hudson Valley's two other congressional districts, Lawler will represent the new 17th congressional district and Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro, who you may remember as the GOP's 2018 candidate for governor in New York and who lost the 19th congressional district special election to Pat Ryan in August, 
Molinaro won the race for the new 19th Congressional District and will also be heading to Congress now. So hopefully you're not too confused here. Bottom line, Pat Ryan was a major Democratic surprise in August for winning the special election. He garnered national headlines as something of a early litmus test for how the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe abortion protections could buoy Democrats in tough districts. And now Pat Ryan is a major Democratic bright spot in New York. And there's, again, been a lot of national and local attention on how the former Ulster County executive and military veteran did it, particularly amid the other major Democratic losses here in New York. It should be noted that there's still an outside shot. Democrats hold a slim House majority. It's unlikely, but they're still counting the votes. And if that happens, Ryan's win would be a key reason why. So how did Pat Ryan win these two races, especially overperforming the top of the ticket and withstanding attacks and what was a Republican wave basically only in New York? Well, my guest today is his campaign manager, Chris Walsh. Chris, welcome. Congratulations. How are you? Uh, Thanks so much for having me, Ben. And um, I'm doing pretty well. Did I do okay with my introduction there? Was that too confusing? Did I cover the bases? What? How? I mean, as somebody who's explained this exact scenario many times over the last six months, you uh, you did about as best as I've heard so far. Uh, all right, thanks. I don't know. That might have been too confusing. I'm still recovering here from weeks of uh, election coverage, so I hear you. I'm, I'm sure you are. Uh, you are too. So I'm going to we're going to talk here about keys to to these Pat Ryan victories, what matters in elections, uh, candidate quality, messaging and more and what mattered in 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 what matters in elections generally from your point of view, what mattered in these specific couple of elections from abortion rights to inflation, crime, Biden, Hochul, Trump more. I also wanted to speak with you, and and listeners should take note of this, because a little closer to home here in New York City, Chris Walsh had another huge win under his belt last year when he was campaign manager for Brad Lander's surprise win in the Democratic primary for New York City Comptroller in a very hard-fought, very tight race against then-City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, among others, and paving the way for Lander to easily win the general election in heavily, heavily blue New York. Uh, city and take one of just three citywide elected positions. So maybe we'll get a little bit into the Lander win last year, because again, I think this all relates to, you know, how do you win tough campaigns? What are some of the key decisions? What really matters to voters and and so forth? So that's enough background here, Uh, Chris Chris Walsh. So so the floor is yours, Chris. Tell us everything that matters and doesn't matter. And uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, start, start Start with something very basic for people here. What does a campaign manager really do? What What's the sort of nuts and bolts of being a campaign manager on an electoral race like a city controller race or like a congressional race? I, I'm, there's obviously differences, but generally speaking, what does a campaign manager do in these campaigns? Yeah, and that's a great question that I wish I had a great answer to. But I think foundationally what a campaign manager is, is they take a lot of different roles depending on how the team is designed, how your principal is, um, how your consultant team widely is. Like basically it comes down to this question of campaigns are basically mass marketing experiments. And what a campaign manager largely does is serves as an Eric traffic controller, both working with your consultant team on your media plans, your TV, your mail, your 
um, digital ads, making sure that all of that is cohesive, designed correctly, bringing in research, you know, your um, personal research on your own candidate to understand their strengths and weaknesses, your polling, your information telling you where the electorate's going to be at, just broad-based research you get from on the ground to your managing your internal staff, your field team, your fundraising team, basically keeping everything working in concert and harmony. So you have the resources, you have the message that over the final weeks of the campaign, you can be getting that message out there. You can be moving voters and you can be communicating across a broad like broad spectrum. And then it also takes on smaller things like you are the one who sets the strategic vision. Oftentimes you are the one who sets, these are the goals. This is the messaging. And here are the voters that we need to be speaking to and talking to. And then in some cases you end up basically being the candidate in lieu of the candidate at the end where they have to be like your most important um, resource on a campaign is the candidate themselves. Their time is the most important thing. And what you need them doing almost all the time is working on ways to talk to voters, even fundraising to be able to share your message or literally out talking to voters and community leaders every day. So you end up being the one who can make decisions without them there, who can kind of guide the ship as you close um, close an election. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. And, and so correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of times on campaigns, you have sort of the, the consultants that the campaign works with, right? And then you have the campaign manager and some other top campaign staff members. And those people with with the candidate obviously have to make a lot of decisions, right? I mean, make a huge number of decisions about resources, about, as you say, candidate time, about uh, how and when to spend money, about what the ads look like, about what literature looks like, a whole bunch of stuff. There's people with different areas of expertise, but um, that can often be some of the trickiest parts of running a campaign, right? Is how you, how, how as a campaign manager, you feel like things should go and the decisions that should be made how the candidate themselves weighs in on these things, and then what the sort of campaign consultants say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all hard. And I think something that I have always tried to do is focus on this, like in a B is better, a B today is better than an A in a week. So it's, you know, making decisions quickly where like in campaigns, the thing you can never get back is time. So oftentimes you have to make kind of gut decisions fairly fast. And the reason you can get there is by having spent all that time developing plans, discussing it, coming up with your strategy, being able to pivot and think about pivoting, but fundamentally staying corely true to what your message was, how you developed it. And like something that like I believe strongly in is you get there faster when it is authentic to your candidate, because if you can really root it in who they are, what they believe in, it's much easier to be nimble as you get down the down the stretch because you can just go back to places where they're comfortable, where your campaign's comfortable, and you can focus on messaging that they are already in tune with and aligned with. So you can actually just be a more nimble campaign as you get through the end versus I think sometimes campaigns and um, candidates have a tendency to try to match themselves to what the electorate's looking for right in that moment instead of trying to shape what the electorate's looking at at that moment. And I no, think that, it's no, that's that really, we, yeah, then that's really interesting. I mean, that that sounds like some of the most essential decision making of almost any campaign, right? I mean, yes. it's like, who are you? Who who is the electorate? Um, you know, the strength of the strength of your ability to frame, you know, a candidacy and a campaign message. I mean, that's really interesting. so. So your philosophy is have a good candidate, identify good messaging that's authentic, and go convince voters. So yes, but I think it's like you can pivot it. So I'll use the economy for an example. Mm. Like Democrats broadly do not pull well on the economy in swing districts. It's like not an area of strength for them. So if you're 
if let's say your electorate's entirely focused on the economy, you shouldn't not talk about it. You shouldn't say, okay, well, we're just going to talk about, you know, gun rights, for example. You have to talk about the economy. But what a lot of people would do is then talk about jobs programs, small business work, like traditional things. And that's something that you should do. And I'm not saying is something that is totally outside the box, but where Democrats can actually win on the economy is economic populism fighting corporate greed. These are areas where Republicans pull horribly on. People do not trust Republicans. They believe they're in the pocket of big corporations. So if you can take the economy, which is fundamentally this question of affordability to voters, and shift it from we need more jobs to Exxon is stealing your money and hurting you, that is an argument that Democrats win versus an argument where Republicans win. So it's always trying to know what the issues that are resonating with people, understanding what they actually care about, and shifting the conversation there. This is also true sometimes with crime is what I'd say, which is crime, the conversation always comes to we need more law enforcement, which might be the answer. But it's also the fact that we have like gun laws that are just absolutely untenable in this country and are letting like weapons of war that like, you know, Congressman Ryan carried in combat onto our streets. And that's an area that pulls horribly for Republicans and is really strong for Democrats. So it's like finding these issues that like people care about. And instead of trying to like speak to them, it's move them to a place that like voters are going to resonate with your candidate more and where you can speak with more authority on. Mm-hmm. What, um, <laughs> I know Brad Lander. I don't really know Congressman Ryan. Um, And you've run or worked on a a whole lot of campaigns at this point. Um, When it comes to the candidate, you know, there's there's often this uh, question about, you know, is the how much does how much does the candidate get to decide who they are and what they are and, and, you know, weigh in on the strategy around selling themselves as a product. Uh, You talked about, you know, a campaign as a mass marketing uh, project. Um, You know, how much, how much generally do you like your candidate to be uh, involved and opinionated about these things or, Hey, you have your expertise in certain ways, but like, let us professionals, you know, run the campaign and tell you, you know, sort of how we want you authentically going out there and being yourself and, and campaigning on these issues. But, you know, let us make the decisions. How, how challenging can that be? And what's your philosophy on on the sort of print, the principles involvement and all that? So I think this is definitely an area where like different campaign managers have different opinions and like different teams of different styles. I'm a big believer in my job is to come in and work with the principle that I have and help them share their story, share their authentic version of what they want to be talking about, how to do it. Now, there are areas that like I have like had to be like, no, that's just not going to work. Like, let's clean that up. Let's find a different way to say that. But like knowing who they are is incredibly important. Like something I will say about, you know, Pat and Brad is these are two people who very much understand who they are which is an incredibly important part of being a candidate is you have to be grounded and you have to be humble in a certain way to be able to do this. I think, especially in tough races like this, where like you're going to get input from a million different people around you telling you, Oh, you should be doing this. You should be talking about this. You should be doing this. And to have candidates who are centered in knowing like who they are, what they're about and sharing that message, it actually provides a much more like message simplicity that is incredibly helpful. Like, 
like, you know, with, with Brad's race, it was like from day one, we basically knew our strategic goals and our message to get there. Now there were times where like, you know, we, for example, pulled, um, some of the programs that Brad had passed and was really passionate about and really supportive of and people like them, but they weren't really moving the ball versus like when we pulled saying like he got endorsed by Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Jumani and the New York times that pulled incredibly well, you know? So it's like, you have to be willing to accept the data, but like at its core, like you have to like run with that authentic candidate in mind. And like with Pat, for example, it always came back to, you know, his foundational, like, you know, being a cadet at West Point, his fighting for freedom and his view of freedom as being something that like is for all Americans. And like seeing that ripped away, seeing like, you know, our economy like drained by corporations, like all these things helped to make them both like just willing to go faster and harder because it was authentic and true to them. So even if we had to make small decisions that maybe meant that it wasn't the perfect campaign they would have liked to have run, it was still true to who they were and they were like able to share that. And that's what I think matters honestly the most to voters at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So let's dig in on this on this current race here. Uh, the margin of the race in the new 18th congressional district here. Uh, the race was called for Pat Ryan. Uh, the margin of roughly 2,000 votes. You can correct me if you have more updated uh, numbers, um, but but a margin of about 2,000 votes out of about 260,000 votes counted. Uh, roughly 50.5 percent to 49.5 percent. Pat Ryan, the Democrat, over Colin Schmidt, the Republican. Um, these other two Hudson, you, you, th- this district is in the sort of mid-Hudson Valley, a little bit to the south, more or less, is the 17th congressional district, as I was saying, where Republican Mike Lawler, the assembly member, uh, has, has won by somewhere around 3,000 votes over Sean Patrick Maloney. Then a little bit north of this race, Mark Molinaro, the Republican in the new 19th district, winning by an even wider margin. That district then extends a little bit over into the into the southern tier a little bit. So what what made the difference here? Um, you know, there's 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 obviously the fact that you had just won this special election. So you have a congressman now you have someone who just won a tough race. Like I said early on, the the districts overlap a bit uh, or significantly. Um but but what do you think made the difference here in winning this race versus these other two Hudson Valley races that went for the GOP, not to mention the Long Island races that went GOP, the fact that Nicole Maliotakis absolutely hammered Max Rose in New York 11 in New York City. Um, districts are always different and, you know, candidates are always different. But what, what made the difference here in this race, do you think? So, you know, obviously I've been you know, hyper-focused on New York 18. So my attention to look at kind of 17, 19, and Long Island has been minimal. But I know something that we did really soundly in our district is one, the special election actually served as a massive opportunity for us because we had already been through this by the time we got to November. Like the days leading up to the special election, I was incredibly stressed because we had to still be working to get our final field stuff done. We are still fundraising because we would have to be running right afterwards. There are just like a million things for me to do. And when we got to the end of the general election this year, everything was working because we had already been through the fire drill. I had to spend very little time with my field team getting everything up and running, not because we weren't knocking. I believe it was thirty five thousand doors over the final four days. It was because like we had had the systems in place. We had been through this already. We knew what we were doing and we were able to execute it. And I think that was incredibly helpful. I think the fact that like after the special election, we got 
effectively millions in free press, basically all across the district that we saw an immediate jump in our name ID throughout the 18th district, even though it's not in the same district, focused almost entirely on our talking points, because the same message that we took from the special election, we just brought forward to the general election. It's a fight for rights and relief at the same time. And that was how it was framed. So like day one after the special, or as we got into the general election, it's like people knew that Pat was a veteran. They knew that he was fighting for abortion rights. And that's a really strong, strong brand to start out with. And I think it helped curtail some of the negative attacks that came in against us as we went down the rope. So like we definitely have the least outside spending in our race than the other two, which is worth noting. But we had already kind of built up such a positive name ID before that, that I do believe it was harder to kind of bring us down and hurt us and like, you know, tag Pat as anti-cop, a crime, you know, like a anti-law enforcement because so much of our, you know, our brand had been about Pat's service in the military. And so much of our efforts had been like folks in Ulster where he had been endorsed by the Ulster County Sheriff and had actually an ad running with the Ulster County Sheriff sharing a story of working with Pat. And I think like, broadly as we get into this you know more collective question about the messaging it's like i think we also ran on record really well which is like we ran on what pat had done you know to support law enforcement to stand against crime but also like move the conversation in a more positive light i can't really give you anecdotal you know this is very anecdotal but our closing ad was actually a, a an ad we had filmed during the special election and brought it back to close with because we hadn't used it then which was pat and his newborn basically like in a baby bjorn and it was a positive ad which like when i'd sit there watching tv over the closing weeks it would be all negative doom and gloom mm -hmm. and then we were sharing a more positive you know happy message and i think people just like you know we're talking game of inches here and i think that just mattered as close as people were like looking for a little bit more hope mm, interesting say more about the importance of um or your view on and and how how it worked in this election of the sort of uh go on the offensive go everywhere talk to everyone um Again, I understand, I mean, feel free to, but I understand you might not want to uh, weigh in on other Democratic campaigns. And as you said, you were very focused on your own. But, you know, clearly one of the glaring issues in Governor Kathy Hochul's campaign and others was just their struggles with really putting forward sort of uh, a vision, uh, talking about what they've done, you know, just these challenges with that messaging that you were just talking about a bit. But the other part of it is that in combination with sort of sort of going out and really fighting for every vote, you know, the question of kind of going on the offensive. Now, I understand in, in some of these swing districts, I mean, you almost don't have a choice, right? You got to kind of yeah. go, go just about everywhere and try to win every vote you can. But these are big, these are big districts. Uh, it's not always easy. You might wind up with a strategy that's more focused on really making sure that your base turns out. Um, but say a little bit about sort of your philosophy and, and in this race in particular or the or the special election plus this race about Pat Ryan and fighting for votes, offering that message and the sort of question of, you know, do you try to go everywhere and talk to everyone and win every vote you can? So I'm a big believer in if you're not on offense or losing you know, you want to be shaping where the fight is happening. You want to, and by offense, I don't just mean negative. I mean like positive. It's like, you want to be shaping the conversation. You want to be saying, this is what we're going to be talking about. Here's how we're going to be talking about it. And you want to be talking about it on your space. Like I always think about it is if at the close of an election, we're talking about healthcare 
or we're talking about the economy, we're probably heading towards a one-way outcome. If we're talking about the economy, and this cycle, for example, is crime or abortion. If we're talking about abortion, Democrats are going to do well. If we're talking about crime, Republicans are going to go do well. And I think what we saw generally was nationally um, is abortion messaging really was successful. And something happened here in New York where we were talking about crime over the close. And I think we held up well enough of both like establishing Pat as, you know, so good on women's rights and reproductive rights and also like kind of making sure people were comfortable with his economic and crime related policies. But like putting also in the negative, which was our opponent was an extremist who would take these things away. And I think we made that choice more clear. And I think by like by taking oxygen out of the room, we allowed our message to be the one guiding the conversation. Now, in terms of like the overall strategy on this type of stuff, it's like we also were doing very tight things to win votes. So Pat's a West Point or, you know, he was a West Point cadet, um, combat veteran, Bronze Star winner. And like we were sending specific text messages um, to Highland Falls, basically um, telling them that Pat was a you know former West Point cadet. Highland um, Highland Falls is the area right around West Point, trying to do our best to get every single little voter. And when when I went back and pulled the numbers, like we're talking about a 2000 point win here, but there was about a 20 vote outperformance is what I was seeing there versus the rest of the area. Like these little things we did all across the district, I think, like, first of all, represent a campaign that had been running like so smoothly as long as we were that we had the time and capacity to do these small things at the end, but also like our unwillingness to take any vote for granted at all and like try to eke out any little sliver of votes that we thought we had an advantage on to make sure we were delivering our message there. One of the interesting decisions that you had to make, or maybe you didn't consider it a, a tough decision at all based on on Pat Ryan's um, outlook, philosophy, et cetera, was what to do when asked about President Biden um, and, and, and how to approach sort of a president, as I said in the introduction, Democratic president, first year, uh, first midterm election, almost assuredly going to be a big Republican year. Democrats have way outperformed expectations. And some of that has to do with Republicans uh, making some terrible choices on on candidates and and allegiance to Donald Trump and election lies and so forth. The Supreme Court's apparent overreach on abortion uh, as, mm-hmm. a, as a Republican goal. But um, the question of your your party's president, who has fairly low approval ratings in a district that he won by what was it? Six points or so in uh, 2020 in this, in this new district. Um, So in a, in a, in a midterm year, I mean, that's more or less a toss up, right? If in a presidential year, he's won it by six points in a midterm year where democratic turnout is, is very likely to be significantly lower. um, How did you approach sort of the president and uh, not not pushing him away and not distancing from him as some others did. I think it's like focusing on at the end of the day, what people want is delivering. Like, so, you know, when the president did uh, come to the district um, during um, an IBM jobs announcement, which I believe was 20 billion um, investment in future jobs and workforce development. And I think it comes down to this, like at the end of the day, a lot of the policies that Democrats are proposing and passing are popular. And even if the like the polling and the approval ratings tell us that the individual proposing them isn't popular, the policies are. 
And that recurringly, you see that you saw that with the Inflation Reduction Act, and you saw all the work that came into lower prescription drug prices. Some of the best applause lines we would get on the campaign trail were about lowering prescription drug prices. And what you always had to do was actually run on achievements, run on delivering, and not necessarily get up there and say, like, you know, like, thank you so much, Joe Biden. What you had to get up there and, and say is, we've done this for you. Here's how we are delivering for you. And here's how we're going to continue delivering for you. And I think like you can bring, you know, the president and if he's going to come to the Hudson Valley and make massive, like a massive show of investment in the future of the community, people resonate with that and people appreciate that. And I think a lot of times Democrats in swing districts forget the fact that they're still Democrats and the same ads that are going to be run against you if you voted for Joe Biden 100% of the time or voted for him 96% of the time are roughly the same ads. It's a question of how do you respond to those and how do you proactively get your message out there instead of being um, being put in a hole um, as the Republicans would want to talk about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's almost very interesting. It's like if you if you shun the president and the things that are getting done, you get no positive benefit, right? And then and then you're just sort of running away from things and you're on defense uh, versus yeah. embrace it and try to get whatever benefit you can out of it, even if you're, you know, negatively tied to to the president in some ways. Um, say say a little bit about this question of um, base turnout versus persuadables. These Hudson Valley districts are so interesting. They're very diverse in certain ways. They're mostly white, but they they actually do have some racial and ethnic diversity that I want to also talk about if you don't get to it in this answer. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a lot of ideological diversity. Um, there's uh, lots of small towns. There's some, I don't know how you describe them, medium-sized, you know, towns and cities. There's lots of countryside, obviously. Um, there's some real liberal, you know, very liberal pockets that are like, a, you know, this sort of Brooklyn to the Hudson Valley uh, pipeline. Um, say a little bit about sort of base turnout, the ideological diversity of this district, um, and the question of, uh, you know, sort of messaging to appeal to the the Democratic liberal to progressive base versus some of those, you know, middle of the road voters who, who, as far as I can tell, there was probably a good bit of ticket splitting in this in this race. I mean, you you outran Governor Hochul by wide margins. Um, so so there must have been uh, voters who voted for Lee Zeldin and Pat Ryan. So say a little bit about sort of the ideological diversity base versus persuadables and so forth. Yeah. So something that I don't think, uh, you know, folks think out, um, think about outside of politics is we look at a chart um, a lot of times that's basically two axes. So on one axis, you have the um, basically like how Democrat versus how Republican they are. And then on the X axis or on the Y axis, my apologies, it's how likely they are to turn out. And how I think of a campaign, like a good, well-run general election, it's what are you doing to make the people who have a lower turnout propensity, who are strong Democrats, more likely to come out and vote? And how are you taking that middle block of high propensity voting, but like kind of wishy-washy middle of the road voters, how are you moving them towards you? So there's very little time spent um, turning out low propensity voter. Like there's very little time spent turning out low propensity, um, like independents. 
but you have to message to independents who are going to vote because it's also worth remembering it represents a two vote shift because if your opponent gets the vote they get one advantage and if you get the vote they lose an advantage and you gain one versus just turning out a new voter who's going to vote for you anyway is only a one vote advantage so you do have to think about these things from this lens and i'm a big like you know like do both person which is first you have to message to um those persuadable voters to make sure that they're hearing from you on your own frame around the issues that they care about and something which i also don't think people fully grasp is like independent non-affiliated voters are very illogical they don't they're not centrist inherently a lot of times they're motivated by issues that are not um maybe it's not always politically clear sometimes these can be very very pro-choice um pro-choice advocates matched with like highly you know um fiscally conservative you know like these are people who like the question is more framed of like what do they want from the like they they see it it's not always clear they're not ideologically like centered they're just different from a normal paradigm of democrat republican um and i think we spend a lot of time there on campaigns because it's the part that we can test and understand better while we're running the race. Like I can get polling back all the time that tells me like these middle voters are going to be moved by this message. So if I give them this message, it'll move our way. I can get feedback on that. It's incredibly hard to get feedback on what's going to increase turnout. Like there's no um, way to actually judge whether or not like a message will increase their turnout over years and years and years of political studies into this. So a lot of the time it's based off of like, you have to take a gut, like gut leap. And I will say um, the special election was the perfect example of this, where we knew from the beginning, the election wasn't going to be one with persuadable voters. It was going to be one with turnout. And the message that we felt like best delivered a turnout focus was going to be around, um, you know, the Supreme Court's um, stripping away of Roe v. Wade and abortion messaging. And that is how we centered our like message so firmly there during the special election. It just so happened or it's because it actually matters that during the general election, we could stick with our messaging. But that was a highly turnout based message for the special, which was not as necessarily to turn out for the general because everybody who was going to vote on that issue alone knew there was an election coming um, because of the wide press, wide notoriety you get around a midterm or presidential race. And then you start moving down your um, your turnout score level. And it's just really hard to predict who's going to turn out and how you turn them out. So what we spend a lot of time on is organizing field and like over the course of a longer campaign, I think we could have seen the you know improvements there. Like I'll note something that I don't think gets discussed enough is we have a bunch of colleges in the district. So we have Marist, Vassar, Bard, SUNY New Paltz, and the total erosion of college organizing voter registration efforts that happened during COVID is really remarkable. So if you look at 2020, the presidential numbers in those areas is massively fallen off compared to what it was in um, 2016, which all comes back to like, we had these long standing systems and organizing like efforts on like on these campuses, which a mixture of like, them not being there for a few years, the juniors and seniors now not really having ever been mentored or taught about how to run these programs has led to kind of like, I think a real problem on our colleges across the country. Um, and it's something that Democrats are going to need to look at like hard over the next few years of how do we kind of re-resource and regrow these college organizing efforts that have like fallen. And like, I don't, I actually do think these students are voting. I just don't think they're voting here as much as they used to. And that's what we need to be working on. Mm. And, and was that something that you focused on at all in the campaign or you didn't have, you didn't have the time to, to try to do that? 
so we did what we could, but like, to be honest, it's like, you know, as looking towards 24, it's the type of thing that's like top of my list for things that need to be strategically invested in over the coming years. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that likelihood that there were a lot of um, ticket splitters uh, who voted for Lee Zeldin and Pat Ryan, potentially? I mean, the, the Pat Ryan, uh, the communications consultants for the campaign actually put out to the to the press uh, an analysis of, of Pat Ryan overperforming versus um, Kathy Hochul in Dutchess, Ulster and Orange counties during this victory um, you know, some, some significant margins, uh, Kathy Hochul lost Dutchess County, but Pat Ryan won it by about four points. So that's an eight point swing, uh, and, and so forth. Um, what do you, what do you make of that? And do you think that came down to unique, uh, differences between the two races or the fact that, um, you know, Pat Ryan was a particularly credible messenger on things where Governor Hochul didn't have a very good message, like on public safety. Um, any thoughts on that? I think my core thought on it is like, I think Pat is a really strong candidate who like we were able to invest resources and time in that area specifically. And like we could hyper focus on an area. We could know the smaller local issues better, like the apparatus of a statewide campaign versus a congressional campaign where we really could take more local tuning to our message. We could do more specific focus and honestly, just Pat's history in the area. So Ulster County, for example, where we you know outperformed as well was like an area that Pat's been county executive for a very popular county executive for years. Pat, um, during the, um, you know, during COVID had a large presence in the local media market going over what was coming. He performed really well during that, which also was shared in Dutchess County. So these people knew Pat partially from his work as Ulster County Executive to the special election. And I think at the end of the day, it's like those types of things allow you to kind of outrun and steer and win back some of the independents who sometimes like they need to know who the person is more on a personal level, even if they're likely to vote Republican. And I think that's what we saw here was, you know, some folks who probably with a more generic Democrat would have voted for a Republican, but because of their history, knowing Pat, and the history of work that he's done, they felt comfortable um, coming the other way. And I would note that the county actually that had the closest alignment between the governor's numbers and Pat's numbers was Orange County, which was the area that was newest to us. So it really does speak to me that like Pat's history of working in those communities and like being there for a long time matters. And it's like the goal of what we're going to take for the next two years is to go back in Orange County, make deeper community ties and deliver for them. Mm-hmm. Um. Speaking of of I should have asked this uh, right after the Biden question, but coming back to this question of, you know, who to embrace and and who to keep at arm's length, um, it seems like the campaign in both the special and this election embraced the left wing of the party, embraced the working families party. Uh, Pat Ryan in this election got something like four and a half percent of the of his vote on the working families party ballot line. Um, that was actually a little less than the percentage of the vote that Colin Schmidt got on the conservative party line. But um, did the Working Families Party play a key role here? Uh, how do you how'd you make that decision to embrace, if you did, the, w, the WFP when 
very quickly, the messaging often turns on the working families party to, hey, they, those those are the those are some of the people that believe in defunding the police. And so you you're with them. You believe in defunding the police. Um, you know, we 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 it's a different district, but we saw. Yeah, you know, we've seen things like that in other in other races. Um, you know, Max Rose went to one Black Lives Matter uh, march and then, you know, Nicole Maliotakis has, has been running ads about him being, uh, you know, against the police ever since. I mean, I think of it as, you know, two ways. So first is um, Pat went to a Black Lives Matter march with uh, actually Congressman-elect Mark Molinaro um, about two years ago, which during our special election, they repeatedly ran attack ads about Pat Pat attending a Black Lives Matter march where they literally cropped Mark out from the photo that they were using. Like he was the next person in the photo. So I think I approached this- Politics in a nutshell there. Exactly. And like, I would add in the, like a lot of the hits on us for- uh, um, when Republicans would say Pat wanted to defund the police or something like that, they would say groups aligned with Pat Ryan want to defund the police. And I would check the uh, the sourcing on it and it would be NARAL, you know, and you just sit there and you'd be like, they're going to make this attack no matter what. It comes back to a question of is it going to be authentically true to the viewer and how have you buttressed your candidate against those attacks so they know the truth, they know what's real versus not true. So like I'm a big believer in like, you come out and you're willing to work with folks who are trying to elect Democrats, trying to pass our policies and work across a broad spectrum. Like the Sunday before the election, we started off the morning with a WFP rally and we had the afternoon with a rally with the governor. You know, like this was a campaign that was centered on like dictating our own message, not letting others dictate our message to us and like a willingness to work across the like you know, the democratic spectrum to elect Democrats. And that is what, you know, I think it's what people want to do. And I think it's like, we forget that like, we're not fighting, you know, progressives versus moderate Democrats. We're fighting Democrats against a lot of times like fascism and authoritarianism on the Republican side. And if we spend too much time squabbling over our little differences, we're not talking about the massive differences that we're facing between the two parties right now. And like in this moment, it's like we need to be running as Democrats and be taking help from Democrats. Like that's how we should be approaching it. Yeah. You know, you get at something key here and and I won't keep it too much longer, but um you know, in uh, before we started recording, I was reading up on some of the recent interviews that Pat Ryan has done. Um, he's obviously been a very desired interviewee uh, it, it, again in the wake of a of a narrow win here. Uh, as I was getting out in the introduction, and and the ways in which you know he uh, again as a veteran uh, with with a lot more sort of validity, authenticity there, I guess you could say, uh, um, authority is really the right word, um, can talk about patriotism and could talk as a Democrat about, um, democracy issues and Trumpism. That seems to have probably been, you know, that, that, that alone may be worth the margin of victory here. Right. I mean, there's, there's a number of things that we're getting at here that could have, could have on their own been the margin of victory, but, um, how much did that resonate, do you think, with voters in this district where, um, again, you might have had you might have had people on uh, in a very in a very strange way picking Lee Zeldin to run, you know, to want to run the state, uh, even though he voted against certifying the election uh, in Congress versus, you know, Pat Ryan, who who's talking about Trumpism as a, you know, an existential threat to democracy here. 
I mean, I think what voters fundamentally come to is recognizing that what Pat is saying is authentic to him. It's his like it's it's genuine to him. And I think that's what comes across and matters more. And the fact that it's rooted in service, it's rooted in things that he is passionate about. Like, I definitely think there is a natural inclination of Americans to really respect and appreciate service members and people who have served our country that makes this transition easier. But I think at the end of the day, when people come at it with a here is where I believe here is why I believe it. And this is why I'm taking a stance on this. It's just powerful. Like, I think some of the best responses Pat has talked about is like um, he had a security clearance. He was an intelligence officer. He would be in jail if he did what the president has done. And I think it's like rooting it in this like reality of his own story and the truth of the position and like willing to say that out loud in a way that is like accepting like it's it's coming back to this foundational principle of campaigns, which is like you're not always going to agree with your representative, but you want to know where they stand and you want to believe that they're going to tell you where they stand on something and why they got there. And even if you might disagree with them overall, if you believe that they've taken a moral and respectful path to get there, I think that matters a lot to voters. Hmm. Last few quick questions. Um, If there's one uh, thing you saw in the, uh, you know, hey, listen, you've you've won you've won these two Pat Ryan races, you won the, this very tough New York City Comptroller race. That's why you know, in combination, I wanted to chat with you and get some of your expertise here. Now you're now you're a big authority on on winning these races in New York, right? These tough tough races, whether in the five boroughs or in the Hudson Valley. So, is there anything you? Um, you saw from the Hochul campaign that you think was the sort of number one mistake of that campaign to let it be such a close margin? Um, Was it this Rose Garden strategy that they basically ran for most of the campaign? Was it a lack of putting forward an affirmative message? Was it um, something else? You know, is there anything you, you saw that you would say, this is why I think, you know, they sort of uh, had their challenges. I mean, I think like, first off, I'm just going to like say the palpable amount of relief that I feel right now and this feeling that we sometimes set the like goals way too far back for Democrats in these moments of like um, Governor Kathy Hochul is going to be governor again and we are not going to have an anti-choice, anti-democracy governor. That is the top line, biggest win, biggest achievement. That's what needed to get done. From there, I think something that we almost need to reckon with broadly is like between those two races, like it didn't play a large role in the controllers race, but definitely the Merrill race in 21 is the role that certain like media outlets are playing on this. And some of the benefits that are coming into a media narrative right now that is shaping New York, like crime is clearly a problem that we need to be addressing and facing. But when you break down the actual numbers, like crime is not spiking in New York compared to other parts of the country. Oftentimes we're seeing the the biggest spike in crime in Republican-controlled cities and states. And these conversations are not happening in the same way there. And how our media narrative is developing in New York is like an important thing that we need to be thinking about. Like the New York Post basically operated as a super PAC for Lee Zeldin over the closing weeks of the campaign. And like, I don't know if there's a response to that from, from our side of like these theoretically unbiased news sources who are just like coming after and shaping the environment that we're fighting on. And it needs to be thought of and deal dealt with. And I think like as we move towards, you know, 24 New York, where we're not going to have a governor's race, um, I 
we are going to have a Senate race potentially with Kirsten running for re-election. We don't expect that to be close, but like we're going to have a lot of tight congressional races coming up. And what we need to be doing is thinking about how are we proactively shaping our message up front and how are we casting our opponents as the extremists they are earlier? Like George Santos in New York three is a like literally fun, tried to like started a relief effort to get insurrectionists out of jail. He's like avidly, you know, anti-choice. And like, it's just, you know, like horrifying there. Then you just have all these candidates who it's like, we need to show their records to the voters. And I think over the next two years in Congress, it's going to be one of the things that New York Democrats are going to need to do, which is like, come out and say, we told you these folks were going to do this. Now they're doing in Congress. We need to hold them accountable this coming fall. Hmm. Did you get the help you needed from Sean Patrick Maloney and the DCCC? Yes. Um, the DCCC and, you know, Sean um, were great allies to us. Uh, Sean was actually, um, you know, helped recruit Pat early for the special election. Um, they spent, you know, between, you know, outside allies, they spent a lot of resources on our district. We had, you know, four organizing team from the beginning. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, what we're seeing across the country was like results that we weren't necessarily anticipating. Um, and I think it's like really exciting to see the work that, you know, they done in a, they've done in a lot of these key districts to hold the ground and make sure that, you know, even if we don't, you know, outright hold the majority, like we have stemmed the red wave and it's going to be a very tight governing coalition for Republicans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And lastly, as you look ahead to 24, lastly on the congressional race, and then one yeah. quick question on the controller race, um, as you look ahead to 24 in New York, what do you what do you think other than what you just said about, you know, sort of thinking a little bit about the, um, you know, conservative media and and narratives and combating some of that, you know, referencing, obviously, the the post and and um, and, and other other things. What um, you know, what what do Democrats do you think need to be thinking about in some of these swing districts to try to win them back in New York ahead of 24? Great question. I think the biggest thing is candidate recruitment. Like, I really think that, like, the biggest thing they need to be doing now is finding good Democrats who are willing to run aggressive early races and, you know, thoughtful about our media market. I think something that happens in a lot of the country is there's kind of a campaign in the box strategy, which is you fundraise for a long time. You get in the final weeks of the campaign. You put all the money you've raised up on TV. The money you raised up on TV gets you thousands of TV points. You battle your opponent. They battle you. And then the election day happens and you see what happens. That doesn't work in New York. We are all basically like, so when we talk about the swing districts in New York, we have 22, 19, 18, 17, 3, 4, and I think one actually outperformed my expectations on that night and should definitely be thought of as a 22, uh, 24 target. But basically every single one, but 22 of the 22 is centered in the New York city media market. Obviously 19 has the least, but every single of the other races are fully contained within the New York city media market. And it is not tenable to think of that strategy where here, like a point costs $2,000. It costs way too much to run the campaigns that we've been running across the country in New York. And we have to think about these as earlier started campaigns that are more comms, earned media heavy, more organizing heavy and more digital heavy. And these are all things that we, I think theoretically know, but just aren't getting there quite yet. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Really, lastly, um, going back to this New York City Comptroller race of 21, Brad Lander as a city council member winning a a very tight uh, primary in a surprise win over City Council Speaker Corey Johnson and other candidates. Um, Just in terms of connecting it to some of the things we've been talking about here, are there, you know, sort of connective tissue themes of of these political uh, campaigns and politics? Are there you know, some of your developing um, playbook that now, you know, come into further clarity here based on winning a tough New York City race that was a that was all about the primary, right? This was, yeah. this was you know, you win the primary, 99.9%, you're going to win the general. That's what happened. Obviously, you got to win a primary. Then there's swing district in the Hudson Valley. You got to win the general election, um, very different playing fields, but any sort of crossover thoughts um, uh, on these races and your experiences over these last two years here? Well, I think one funny thing, and just to kind of circle back to, they're both within the same media market, which is always fun to remember when you're thinking about these. Like, obviously, the voters are different within it, but the message that you're playing is still within the same confines of like how we think about spending on these are very similar. Like the same ad I would have bought for Brad is the same ad that we were buying for Pat, like in terms of buying strategy, like they are in the same media market. So how it's messaging is important. Um, I think the biggest thing is like, Candidate authenticity, going back to it, candidates with deep roots in their community who understand it, who are willing to like, not necessarily, I think we sometimes um, think about conservative progressive as this um, ideological spectrum, but I think of it as conservative versus risk taking here, which is candidates who are willing to take risks and understand that like, not everything is going like, not trying to, uh, Pat says this really well, but like, kind of like, get all the intel spend two weeks trying to make a decision it's like from the beginning it's like we know what we stand for we're going to go fight for it and we're going to communicate on that and people might not always like it but we're going to try it every single time and if you don't try to pinpoint poll to your heart's content and try to become too precise like that comes across and i think it's something that brad was incredibly good at was trusting his gut trusting um, how he thinks his messaging would go to the coalition that we needed to win. And then Pat, the same way of trusting. It's like, I know this community, I know how they're going to resonate and bringing that messaging into it where like, I have a lot of respect for our pollsters and consultants, but it was having experts, you know, in the district who were like, no, this is how we're going to talk about it. This is how we're going to think about it. And I think that really kind of comes through as the through line between the two races. And I think ultimately, you know, campaigns are questions of who can get more votes and the messaging and the targets might change, but the tactics don't necessarily. And it's coming back to finding the right tactics and finding the right messengers for your for your story. All right, we will leave it there. Uh, Chris Walsh has won three big races as a campaign manager in the last couple of years and shared a lot of thoughts here with us today. That's been the uh, the most recently this this Pat Ryan win just called officially um, in the last couple of days here. We're speaking, as you let people know, uh, on Saturday, November 12th, uh, but just called here in the new 18th Congressional District in New York in the Hudson Valley previously winning in August the special election for the 19th congressional district of the outgoing districts that are going away after redistricting. And then prior to that, the 2021 New York City Comptroller race with Brad Lander. 
Chris, thanks for very much for taking the time. What happens for you now? What happens for a campaign manager after after a congressional campaign? Uh, let, Put out the pastor normally. You know, we uh, <laughs> like I don't know. I, I appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm probably going to sleep for a few days. Yeah, and, sleep. Uh, we'll we'll fi- we'll figure it out in the long right, run. Right, right. Um, things. Well, I'm sure you'll yeah. I'm sure you'll be sought after here to, uh, for for future campaigns. So anyway, uh, thanks for taking the time. Get some rest. Appreciate all the thoughts and uh, and be well. Thanks so much, Ben.